welcome to a, another episode of You Should Read This. You Should Read This. I'm here, as always, with uh, Tom van der Luba. Uh, and this week, <laughs> Tom's got it held up for those uh, watching. Uh, we will be reviewing The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welsh Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America, and How to Undo His Legacy by David. Gellis, I presume that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, yeah, and again, another pick from you, Tom. Uh, so I, I wonder if, uh, once again, uh, it should be you to introduce uh, this book. Yeah, I chose uh, I chose the book um, uh, because I think uh, our generation, and I'm talking about those who, let's say, uh, started to be educated from the um, from the 80s on. We all are raised uh, with Jack Wells and GE. And I, I would just take uh, the the introduction of the book as an uh, as a more intellectual introduction, but it reflects why I thought it's interesting to discuss the book. And it starts with the following sentence: To understand the civilization, consider its heroes. Uh, our heroes reflect our collective aspirations. And then he says, ancient Egyptians glorified the pharaohs, uh, etc. The Greeks, the philosophers, etc., etc. But let's say in our shareholder value capitalism, which I would define especially from the 80s on, or with the starting, and we'll come to that, of the article of Milton Friedman, I think our god was Jack Welch. Uh, and and what's interesting now that we're moving to another phase of capitalism, I think, or at least reflect a lot on that, it's interesting that American journalist, uh, because that's, that he is, I think he is from the New York Times, uh, yeah. I was a little bit waiting for it, so uh, that there would be a kind of reflection on, on what happened. And um, I, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting book uh, to review. Yes, yes, I agree. And I was, I was somebody who read uh, Jack Welch's book from the gut uh, and took a lot. I mean, I'd like to think I was skeptical of some of it at the time, um, and I can't, I can't truly recall my re reaction. But I do remember reading it avidly uh, at, at the time that it came out. Uh, so yes, it, it did have an impact on me. Uh, and it's so interesting to see. And we'll, obviously, we'll get into how he defines Welchism and, and what it means, but. In the way that he lays it out, it is still so prevalent. It's so prevalent in 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 corporate in the corporate world, uh, and of course, you and I are very familiar with the examples that run against this trend. And he himself cites uh, the author here cites some examples the, in the last chapter of the book. But yeah, we are still in the grip of Welshism. You could put it that way. I th I would say. Um. Okay, so um, I think you very often do a, a good job at just laying out, you know, the structure of the book and and the various sections. Would you like to break down that, like the main flow? Yeah, I think it's um, 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 we also should say something more about the introduction because I think we should uh, have a short stop at Milton Friedman, um, and then and then it's more it's the the book is built in a chronicle way. Um, uh, so, so it starts with, with uh, then the development of of uh, GE, 
Um, then also the context of uh, of electronics and and car industry, etc. And then and then and then it it becomes stronger and 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 I would call it more crazy or more uh, more uh, much more into let's say kind of maximizing those goals. Uh, and then it ends more or less with the negative extern uh, externalities. And then the last uh, chapter is about beyond Welshism. But I think let's say the first, the first one to six uh, pages is, is 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 all the time. It's a kind of a kind of maximization of what's happening. And then seven and eight is a kind of reflection. And then how do we turn the ship in the other direction? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and one thing I hadn't I hadn't quite appreciated. Uh, until I read this book, um, was just how awful of a character he was, right? You know, the the bawling out of executives, you know, how every meeting would end with a shouting match. Um, the fact that on on the campus he created to train new executives, he heard the story of some of the, the participants watching a lesbian porn movie, you know, at that campus, which forced a couple of the women in the room to to walk out and how he just he just laughed that out. And so those those points about you know his let's say his morality uh really really struck me. And I think that that's a theme that's you know is touched on during the book, but perhaps I, I found a little underplayed to some extent that this is a this is a story of of morality, I think, uh in Jack Welsh, in corporate America. In society at large, um, or perhaps the the lack of or lack thereof, um, but yeah, that was um, that was something that uh, you know immediately struck me in the story when we were in the early part of the book when we were charting his his rise to the top of GE. Yeah, although although what I also see is, but perhaps we just dive into those chapters. What what you also see is how how fast society also changes so if you just take other examples of let's say i mean i want don't want to put all the all the all the topics like slavery and and and, and feminism etc I, I won't put them all on the table but if you just see how fast in one generation uh conversations change at the din at dinner tables etc mm. let's say fraternities etc etc there is there is a lot going on or um lesbian gay movement etc uh, which let's say I mean I'm Dutch, so that was not a that was not a great topic anymore when I was raised in the Netherlands. But but still, if you just see in one generation how how this acceptance of, for instance, homosexuals are able to marry, etc., has changed in 25 years' time, and you also see this in all parts of society. And discussions in boardrooms 25 years ago were just very male, masculine. Uh, uh discussions uh probably i mean i was not at that time in the boardroom but uh, if you just read and see, see those pictures etc you can just imagine what kind of jokes were made uh after dinner uh smoking the cigar so to say so um but let's say from from if you just see and if you read between the lines um it's it's a kind of toxic uh toxic situation but I would like to start um, because I just reflected on Milton Friedman because I don't know if everybody is familiar with this. 
uh, I think what is very strong in the introduction is that he starts with um, with the article in 1970 of Milton Friedman, uh, where where the theoretical layer was was laid down as a kind of fundament of what happens after that, uh, where this very famous article was about saying companies are only there to maximize profits for their shareholders. So that is the theoretical starting point of shareholder value capitalism, and then it takes 10 years. Um, when Reagan comes to power, or Thatcher, etc., um uh and 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 let's say jack welsh and those other people they are product also of their time and and those developments if jack welsh would have been there than somebody else and there are a number of these kind of people who just said okay see friedman's and friedman got a nobel prize eh? i mean it's Mm. from from hindsight you say oh that's interesting but um uh, and also, if you dive into Friedman, Friedman is also much more, um, let's say, nuanced. He just says, okay, the state should rule and take the responsibility for, for um, let's say, societal goals. He doesn't say that, that, that those goals are not important, but, he, but you could also frame it in another way and say, okay, Friedman just says, you can't leave these topics to companies because they just have another goal. You can also frame it like that. At the moment, we frame it and say, Milton Friedman only wanted companies to earn as much as much as possible, but that's also not the case if you just read his articles. But that's the starting point uh, in, the, in the introduction, and I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, that's right. And the other thread running through this is, is, is the financialization, which is running parallel. Uh, yeah, the financialization of of economies, the, the the advent of new communications technologies, and the ability to transfer money around the world, um, the liberalisation of, um, to some degree, you know, the banking and financing. Although, although interestingly, all through this this period that he's coming to to prominence, there's still, you know, a certainly during the 80s, there's still a relatively high level of um, financial regulation. Um, which, which of course becomes liberalised even more uh, later on. But uh, I think those those twin factors of an embrace of shareholder capitalism within a much more financialized uh, economy um, were were the preconditions, I suppose, for this style of of capitalism. Yeah, this, if you would let's say from a, from hindsight uh, or, or take it from a historical perspective, you could say, okay, it starts with 1970. Uh, Milton Friedman, and then, or 1980, Reagan and Thatcher. And then at this moment, we would say perhaps financial crisis, 2008, 2009, but it's not really clear. And then afterwards, it's, it, it starts to be unclear where is there a kind of new fundament where we get back to multi-stakeholder uh, capitalism. So that's, that's, let's say, the way framing this. And then GE is the biggest and most extreme example to show to show this yeah i i think that's right but but i think there's also and this is a i suppose a a hypothesis of mine and he doesn't really talk about in the book but something about for me there's a there's a spiritual factor here or a, a morality factor you know is this also coinciding at some level with a 
as a as a decline in uh you know morality and the in in society right and there's there's there seem to be underpinning this a sort of spiritual malaise that um because you could you could look at all of these things in terms of you know greed wrath lust you know um that that seem to get enabled and tolerated um you know throughout it's also throughout a moral crisis you could yeah. also call it a time of egoism or mm. greed is good. Uh, you can, yeah. you can also see those at, at Tom Wolf, etc., uh, bonfire affinities, etc. So this time has its its economic system. It has its 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 art, its its movies, its its music, etc. It has it has its its own. It's it's not only economics. Like you have the sixties yeah. with the music and the protests, etc., and a different way of. Uh, fashion, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, but if you dive to it for, now from a business perspective, then GE is uh, the the Tom Wolf of the of 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 this economic play which is going on. Yeah, and in, in inver- uh, an inversion of, of of I suppose classic morality, right? It's the greed is good. Yeah. Um, so. Do you want to uh, dive into um, the next chapter or? Yeah, yeah, please. Well, yeah, go for it. You or am I? No, no, you go for it. I, I go for it. Okay. Now they start. They start to explain um, uh, this whole this whole starting point, and 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 there, I I just also want to make a remark. Um, uh, it 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 starts that he takes over. Um, um, and then starts to lay off people. Um, but I think it would have been wiser also for for the acceptance of the book to create a little bit more, more context. Because if you just see what happened in the world at that time, all those, I mean, it started, let's say, start of the globalization, so to say. And it started with Japan and everybody thought at that time, okay, Japan will rule the world and, and we will just lose because from a production uh, point of view, Japanese are much better. And it was everywhere around the world. It was the car industry. Porsche was nearly bankrupt. Uh, they went to Japan to show to see how Toyota did Kaizen, uh, which is later then mentioned also in the book in Six Sigma. Consumer electronics were were just... Everybody was thinking, okay, we're not going to survive this. Philips had the same stuff, the same problem, Siemens, etc. And they were talking about Japan, and they said, okay, the next country which will take over is South Korea. And there were at that moment there were three options: close down the whole stuff and just say, okay, sorry, we lost, or uh, downsizing, which which Jack Wells did and others did, or 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 starting to build their own factories in Asia and transporting your factory equipment. The same happened with textiles, et cetera, bring it to India or in North, Northern uh, Africa, et cetera. So, so I think to, to, to give him some, uh, I wouldn't say perhaps, even I would say credits, because I think it even would have been better in the book first to, to accept those possibilities they had, to explain it much more with globalization, there's some somewhere in the book they're showing the labor costs in in Japan or China in comparison to the U.S. and that's a factor 100 or something like that. 
to understand what was going on at that time. Because if you didn't live at that time, you just say, yeah, why are you closing the factories down? Because they were, they were loss making. And he also doesn't quantify the losses which were made. Um, so as I, as I repeat, Philips had the same problem, making television screens, et cetera. And then Sony was the big, was the big company at that time with the Walkman, et cetera. And they said, okay, they will, Sony will take over. And Sony was doing very, very well. So that's the start. Um, and, then, and then the question was, yeah, how do you, how do you organize this? In a, in, a, in, a, in, in a way, how do you, how do you uh, change just a company where 500,000 people work or something like this? And that is, and that is described then. And then there's this rule of, uh, of taking out uh, 10% every year, which is a very simple rule because you just tell to everybody, to every manager, every year you have to take out the worst 10% of your, uh, of your workforce to just cut uh, labor costs in a, in a, in a, in a, let's say, in a, um, a substantial way. Uh, and I actually was amazed that when he started to lay off people that in the beginning were only 7% or something like that, I, I just remembered and thought, okay, that was m- done in a much more extreme way, like you see nowadays. But at mm. that time, that was perhaps extreme. But if you if you just see the way, let's say, tech companies lay off people at the moment, uh, that has become, I wouldn't say that's correct, but has become much more normal than at that time. Yeah, that's the that's the starting uh, chapter, I would say. Yeah, and I hadn't I hadn't appreciated those that that context that these factories were as loss making as they were, and co- yeah, he doesn't mention the competition from Japan and the fact they were suffering. Um, it's more presented as he's wantonly cutting jobs um, as a me- as a means to improve increased profits. It's, on, profit it's on page forty-two. So it says um, uh, by the end of eighty-two, the company had had uh, shed thirty-five thousand employees, almost nine percent of the workforce, and and they had four hundred and eleven thousand people in nineteen eighty. So this is mm. an enormous amount of people. And then, yeah. and then, in the, and then he is called Neutron Jack. Uh, that's, uh, ch- that's in this chapter two. And then he starts, and it also said he doesn't say exactly how much how much uh, losses they made, uh, but it says somewhere that they were loss making. Okay, uh, I I, 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 I see it, but it also would make, for instance, sense from an economic point of view to 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 mention those numbers just to see, okay, if he wouldn't have acted, and it was the same at Siemens and the same at Philips and all those, all those, all those companies who, who also produce those white goods, et cetera, Electrolux, you can mention them all. They all had the same problems. Bosch, they all had the same problems. Uh, and because all these TV sets and, 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 and um, house appliances, they all came from Japan. Right. Radios, everything everything and, and it was and it and it went so fast and cars and at the beginning nobody said everybody said now the japanese they can't build cars they're so ugly and uh, etc and they but they progressed enormously and they were just superior in their on the uh, production side and then at a certain, certain point you had cars and they were not only cheap 
no, they also were pretty, pretty well produced. And then, oh, yeah. and then, and then all those all those car uh, makers they they lost they lost their sales. And and who did survive? On the one on the one spectrum, uh, the German car makers because they were in this expensive high segment. And then and then the rest was uh, was taken over more or less by uh, by the Japanese. That was the situation at the beginning of the eighties. Chrysler also. I mean that's that's another. I don't know if it's just in, in the next chapter. Um, uh, they all had they had, all had enormous problems, and everybody was thinking, "Oh, how will we survive in the West? Will you right. take over the economic world?" That was that was the perception at that time. Yeah, but and it's interesting how this links back to Friedman because of course the, the, this the, the politicians weren't responding to this and and putting out protectionist policies and railing against free trade and closing the borders to to Japanese cars. They were, I guess, they were selling, saying to the, to the business sectors, you know, suck it up. This is free trade. You need to compete. Um, so they weren't being protected by politicians. And you had, for instance, uh, strikes. I remember in the, in the UK where mm. uh, Thatcher, uh, there were strikes in the media uh, sector where where they still were setting the newspapers by hand with the with the stuff, etc. And they want to automate it, and mm. it's not possible because the labor unions blocked. Or uh, you also had, um, uh, let's say, the the coal mines, uh, where 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 you couldn't lay off people, although although let's say people got sick, and it was enormous expensive uh, because they had to go I don't know how many hundred meters under the ground in Germany and the Netherlands, and everybody was opposing it. Uh, textile industry exactly the same. So it was a it a we. I mean, if you didn't didn't live at that time, it's 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 not imaginable. So at the moment we have this kind of crisis, much more about sustainability and climate, at, at, uh, et cetera. At that time, we were just thinking, okay, will the West survive from an economic point of view? Because it mm. was the starting point of the globalization. Yeah, and I think I, th- I think it it would have been fair to create a kind of more context. Because if people didn't live at the time, they don't have this context, and I would say, well, "What were they doing? Why were just laying off people?" Right. Uh, but it's, right. It's, it's, it is said to be, let's say, fifty-two. It says uh, the the consumer electronics was uh, it faced growing competition from Japanese and Korean manufacturers who were turning out superior products for a fraction of the cost. So it it is said, but um, it would have made sense to put some mere, more numbers numbers on that and it says wells and his management team convinced workers to accept concessions and now the final part comes pay pay cuts that might help the division turn a profit so they were loss making and they were heavy all those companies were heavy loss making mm. so that that's the starting point and then he um he um yeah he is able to um by by this massive layoffs to uh, to do uh, to manage the turnaround, and he was not the only one. So um, um, those examples are also mentioned. IBM had the same problem with the big mainframe computers. Yeah, where Lou Gessner uh, did a turnaround, and is also mentioned as one of the big managers at that time. And Lee Koka with Chrysler had the same problem with the Japanese car industry. So. I mean, they are also mentioned in the book, but very briefly. But 
those huge companies with enormous workforces had exactly the who same were treated problem. very well, right? And, yeah, who... and they had exactly the same problem. And so uh, yeah. IBM also had a number, but that's, let's say that's the positive starting point. And then perhaps you should move to where it becomes uh, 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 more problematic, I would say. Yes, well, I, yeah, and I suppose in that context, you can understand why perhaps there were people around Welsh who, who if if they were thinking, you know, one of the ways out out of this mess is through cuts. We want we want someone like Welsh, right? Who is pugnacious, who is um, ruthless, um, who, yeah, doesn't have that. Well, I suppose it has a different set of ethics. <laughs> and you can understand why he rises to prominence in that context. Yeah, and what and what also happens to someone on a, on a personal field if somebody uh, becomes more and more successful, huh? Yeah. So the, this, this whole idea of self-reflection uh, um, just disappears, so to say. Yes. And then... Um, and then we start to see as the as the, the story progresses is that I suppose a, a couple of things happen, right? I mean, he he is awarded more and more stock of the company, so he he is incentivized around stock price. His his reward is um, is primarily around the the performance of the stock, uh, and then he eyes this opportunity in GE Finance. Um, to make profits uh, much more easily. Um, there isn't the need for R&D. There isn't long cycles of in innovation. Uh, he can use GE's credit rating, very high credit rating, um, to go out and make acquisitions uh, and finance property deals. And so... This is a, a major part of the story of his his rise. Is this uh, growth the the growth of GE Finance and how he how he uses that? Um, and and then and then a third plank to that is that it's also much easier to manipulate the books um, with this finance arm than it is in other areas of business, which allows him to engage in this smoothing out of earnings. Um, which of course stock analysts, which which stock analysts love, and so that gives him a another means to manipulate uh, the share price performance. Yeah, that's a financialization of the economy, huh? which. Uh, mm. uh, although I have to, I, I just I just wanted to, because I found it uh, the numbers i was searching uh for on uh, page 80 it says something about the difference in 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 cost uh of labor so it was um this is another example but it it says uh 14 dollars an hour in comparison to 30 cents in china so, and it, and it, and and that so it's also a book about the effects of globalization yeah and now, and now, um, and now, and it says he had machinery from the headquarters in New Britain, disassembled, sent across the world, and reassembled for cheaper labor for cheaper labor force. 
and that what that was happening all over. And it also happened to the car industry afterwards. But it also yeah. happens at the moment. Uh, how many how many IT people work uh, for Microsoft in India? Right. Yeah. Or are brought over from India to work. So in, so, in so uh, it's that's nothing new. And the other thing, I, I I was searching for the numbers just also to to um, uh, to frame it in comparison to Jack Wells' layoffs. It's on, on page seventy. I found the number IBM, Lou Gessner. Within months of Gessner's arrival at IBM, the unthinkable happened: sixty thousand of Big Blue's employees were let go. It was mm -hmm. the largest mass of mass layoff in history at that time. So the so uh, Jack Wells laid off 9,000, and then 10 years later, Gessner 60,000. And then on, on, the, on page 71, uh, Leah Kocka, uh, which is uh, those three guys were those, those super CEOs at that time. Uh, Chrysler in the 80s and 90s, closed factories, um, decided to fire 40,000 people. So, um, and then let's say if, if, if there wouldn't have been a combination with with enormous own salaries, then you could say, okay, somebody would have acted in favor of the company to survive. But what it makes a little bit difficult is then if you just see that 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 this this enormous incentive programs uh, in combination with shareholder-driven uh, stock price optimization uh, then takes over also and stays also there. Uh, when when things go much better, and uh, that's the whole part of GE Capital you just mentioned. Yeah, the GE Capital, and yeah, that's a that's a really important point, isn't it? If it, if you're going to be rewarded as a CEO through stock price, and there's no, and you're going to be rewarded in the short term, right? This isn't you don't tend to get rewarded for long term performance of stocks. It's it's the short term performance of stocks. Mm -hmm. And you've got a massive work workforce, uh, and you've got yeah, strong competition overseas. Uh, yeah, what's the quickest and easiest way uh, to to keep your your board happy? Right, it's it's to it's to engage in financial manipulation and to get into uh, and to get into finance. And so it does make sense from. From that perspective, um, and of course, we do now have modern examples of companies who do compete with companies uh, with much lower labor labor rights. I'm thinking of Favi in France, you know, the, the machine components operators who have radically changed their culture um, and actually done a lot of what Jack Welsh, what Jack Welsh might approve of, which is you know co completely eliminate middle management and bureaucracy. Um, if you're in the position of that CEO and your choices are um, engage in financial manipulation and develop your your GE capital, your finance business, versus a wholesale radical transformation of your business culture, uh, you're probably going to go for the former. You're going to go for the um, you know the easier option. Yeah, what I what I find a very good quote. Uh, it's on page uh, 106. And I also find it a good quote because it's a board member of Goldman Sachs, which is he's quoted. He says, a lot of GE leaders were thought to be business geniuses, said Bill George, the former CEO of Medtronic and a board member of Goldman Sachs. But 
they were just cost cutters and you can't cost cutting your way to prosperity. And I think that's a very good way of putting this. Uh, and, and it happens over and over again. If you, if you do a turnaround in a company and you bring a company from loss making to profitability, then it has an enormous effect on your, on your, on your price on your stock price, which everybody understands because there's a big difference between going bankrupt and, and, and earning money. And that has an enormous effect on the stock price. But, what, but when you have finally, uh, let's say, done the turnaround, and when you grow, and it's the same for a growth path, if you're stock listed and you grow, then at a certain point, the valuation uh, has just accepted your way of growing. And then when at a certain point, you're not able to grow as fast as you did in the past. And then the question is, what do you do? Do you accept? Because of you have uh, the share price is a, is a discounted cash flow uh, model. What when your cash flows go down and your, and your stock price goes down and your, in, your incentivized or your, your incentive uh, is, is your stock price in your own salary. Yeah, why are you going to solve this? Are you just accepting you not have a bonus or are you accepting that your stock options uh, don't have the value anymore like they had in the past? And then it becomes tricky. And I think that's the turning point in the book where you see that earning a lot of money and, and raising the, the stock price over and over and, and more or less saying, we're always meeting those goals of the markets there it becomes nasty and i think the most central example in the in the book is um and it's also a very uh well known example is the boeing example right so perhaps you want to say something about the boeing example right. uh, if you know what i yes so this is the um the boeing 737 max which was um boeing's uh new uh well Let's, let's wind back a little bit further from that, right? So Boeing has a choice. It realizes it's experiencing competition from Airbus in Europe. Um, and it has a choice as to whether to develop a whole new plane or to um, take the 737 and, and effectively and upgrade it, um, knowing that the, the, the choice to develop a new plane from scratch, of course, is going to have an impact on short-term earnings. Or, and um, and will only pay off in the long term. And so Boeing uh, makes the choice to develop the 737 MAX. Uh, and one of the things they discover in the development of this, that there's a, there's a problem with its, its, um, its elevation and the way that its nose cone operates and, and uh, in flight conditions. So it creates this sensor on the nose cone um, that, uh, uh, detects when 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 they're, they're, they're suffering from this elevation uh, problem or the aircraft is suffering from the elevation problem um but instead of being up front with the market and his customers about the, this this flaw of the design and this need for the sensor um they they don't and so they basically they create this single point failure in that this this if this sensor doesn't operate effectively it's extremely dangerous for the aircraft but they go to market with it anyway they don't tell uh, their customers about it, and uh, and ultimately uh, there's a crash. Um, Lion Airlines in in Ethiopia um, is on a flight uh, to to Malaysia, um, 
and the the plane crashes, people die, and uh, and and Boeing never really comes clean. Like they they never come clean about um, the issue. Um, the CEO intimates that this is a problem with the pilots, um, and and not a fault of the aircraft, but a a very real example of how this you know, cost cutting short termism. Um, affects the, the yeah the quality of the of the product and and the culture in Boeing was very similar to the culture in GE um, it's, it's, uh, there is a second question right. uh, there are two questions after another so it's um, it's uh, so so and that's even let's say a maximization of of, of this this uh, absurd uh, situation that's okay something goes wrong plane crashes, all those passengers die. Then everybody knows uh, that you have a severe problem. But because they want to keep the share price on a, on a, on a certain level, they said, no, 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 it's uh, everything under control, etc. Although, although uh, let's say, if you just see uh, then documents released later to the Congress, it's uh, page uh, 156. And then, I mean, I mean, it's also not, I mean, the way the book is written is a journalist, so it's not a scientific book. So, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's normal that you, that you, that you search for juicy quotes, but it says here, the airplane is designed by clowns who are in turn supervised by mon- monkeys read one message. This is a joke read another. The airplane is ridiculous. Another wrote, I honestly don't trust many, many people at Boeing. So, and then, I mean, you have this, you have this, uh, this, this discussion in Congress, but it's just one a very extreme example of that not before something happens, but after something happens and people die. Not even then, people are cleaning up the mess and saying, "Okay, we have to we have to admit that we made mistakes." Now we need another uh, mistake of the of the same of the same caliber uh, before something happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 shocking, uh, and of course, in the airline industry, it's it's the the stakes are much higher. I mean, it's one thing to cut corners and decrease the quality on on washing machines or toasters. Like, of course, I guess there is there is risks there, but it's entirely another to do that with airplanes. And you have perhaps let's say the example, and we won't dive into this, but you have this all those. All those uh, 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 scandals of of, of accounting, uh, Enron, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It all it all comes from that situation, financialization of your of your whole uh, companies. That what Jack Welch, who by education was uh, he studied uh, chemistry, but he just saw okay, why should I have these enormous difficulties in producing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When I can earn so much money in a much easier way by uh, building leasing companies, etc., and which he did with uh, G Capital, and if you just see the numbers of 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 stuff they financed all around the world and how much money they earned with with a let's say still substantial amount of people, but but enormously, and that's what we also see in other in other uh, books that if you just see. How much money Goldman Sachs or others in the financial industry make in comparison with, let's say, producing stuff? 
uh, if it is toasters or radios, etc. Uh, yeah, uh, it's the same with the, with the whole IT and software uh, companies eh? like Apple and and and, and Microsoft, etc. If you just see uh, what margins they have for their for their software, it's not comparable with producing something. Right, and uh, and and the other point being made in the book is that there was a you know there was a period where people working in the financial sector in the in banking world didn't earn substantially more than those working in other sectors. It was relatively comparable, but that has changed radically. And I'm a, I'm an example. I mean, I trained at university in electronic engineering. And where did I get a job? Not in an engineering firm. I went to get a job with Arthur Anderson. <laughs> I got a job as a management consultant serving, you know, these um these these captains of industry. I mean, even that term is, you know, loaded. Um, who, you know, in many cases, their their principal aim was the financialization of their firms. Um, so I've I've some to some extent been complicit in this in this shift. Um, it's, uh, and, and, and I, and I can remember, I mean, and, and the difference is extraordinary. I mean, the difference in, in starting salary for an engineer and, um, a management consultant, uh, let alone an, an investment banker, which would have been another step again. Uh, yeah, was stuck. Yeah, for me, it's exactly the same, man. I mean, I was educated to become a diplomat and then I started at McKinsey, exactly the same. Yeah. And the starting salary was just crazy in comparison to all the other stuff you could do yeah and then you had the brightest uh, students who studied medicine whatsoever concert pianist and it uh, doesn't matter a theoretical um, physicist it doesn't matter what it was they just took took all the all the all the brightest from any discipline because they their salaries their goldman sachs exactly the same so that's um but I think that's uh, the, the the first part is it just it becomes more and more uh, extreme, uh, and and then probably this example of Boeing is just also let's say from a kind of visualization, because the airplane which goes down is different than Enron. Eh? So, so yeah. I think it, it 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 shows in a very in a very uh, good way uh, that that even. Uh, an airplane which which comes down and hundreds of people uh, who die uh, didn't stop the craziness. Uh, and then and then the question is beyond this, what kind of effects does this have? Because there at the moment are a few books written on this, uh, and I would I would I would like to frame this as um, uh, kind of polarization, inequality. Uh, taking out the middle uh, men or the middle management, etc., the normal jobs. It's it's you have to on the one hand you have the the very low paid jobs in the in the warehouses of Amazon and 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 taxi drivers for Uber, and on the other hand you have the bright guys. Uh, if you see the average salary of Google, it's I think three hundred thousand or something. Like that. It's it's incredible. So this kind of polarization. Uh, 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 and I think the book does this very well uh, by, by, um, let's say, taking the writing and chapter which is called the negative externalities. It's chapter uh, seven, um, which I find I find interesting to 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 zoom out and to say, okay, what kind of effect does this focus on? 
finalization and shareholder value has or what does it have for uh, effects on, on our society as a whole? Um, and I don't know if you want to say something. No, no, tell me more about, yeah, your, your, um, yeah, your takeaway here. And Because you have a lot. On the one hand, you have this kind of inequality. Uh, then you have the job insecurity. Um, and, then you, and then you see, for instance, page one, one seven one um uh this whole idea of of bonus culture which mm. which nowadays younger people just think bonuses are normal i mean we, we did a whole podcast interview on, on on this salary models uh that that let's say this idea of individual individual exceptional people um uh, uh which which let's say by this bonuses creates a totally different atmosphere. So it's more, it's, it, it creates a work atmosphere of against each other uh, in comparison to working with each other. And then he is also mentioning Steve Ballmer, uh, who, was a, who was a friend of, um, of um, Imolt, the successor of um, Jack Wells at GE. And so this, this whole way of of this kind of management culture and the way people were raised, those people are in a lot of those companies just implementing the same kind of tools. That's a kind of survival of the fittest Darwinistic principle. Uh, yeah. uh, and it's interesting how he describes this. Um, uh, it reminds me of a of a metaphor on one of my podcast guest views of it. It's, it's like it's like we the way that we treat workers now. It, it's like we, we it's like they're all cat cats, and we put a little bit of you know, a little bit of cat food just just in front of them, right? To 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 um, to gobble up, and that the whole thing is sort of identifying the individual to get from them exactly the behaviors we want to optimize our business model. Um, yeah, and, and of course, it's all in the language. I know this is sort of overdone almost to this point now, but the, the human resources, right? We're, um, yeah, the broader atomization of of, of society. Um, what, what I what I saw perhaps, and I was just curious, I mean, he is describing Amazon. Uh, cameras and computers are watching Amazon employees every minute of the day. I have also a lot of books written on on this whole Orwellian uh, way of 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 um, uh, yeah, all those cameras around and this control and um, uh, the negative side of this whole transparency. And he and he, he writes at uh, page one hundred and seventy three. Uh, about about Amazon, and I I I I, I, I would, was not able to check it, but I, I just couldn't believe it. The company loses about three percent of its hourly workforce every week, translating into a turnover rate of some hundred and fifty percent a year. And I was just thinking, how is yeah. it possible? Um, but let's say it, it it this is the contrast of long life employment of those companies like IBM and GE where the book started with. So that's that's the end of the, the book. This 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 idea that you can't be secure um of of your job. In the past you had 
perhaps too much security because you couldn't do anything you want. And as long as you didn't steal, uh, there was no problem. But now it's the other way. It's the other opposite extreme that you don't have any security and you're waiting as a driver for Uber or Amazon, etc. If you are allowed to, to work today or you have this zero hour contracts and then and you have a kind of algorithm and they tell you, okay, you work for H&M or it's called H&M or this fashion companies. And mm. then you, you know, in the morning, if you, if you, if you, if you have to go to your work or not, uh, because I don't know, a combination of weather and other, other data uh, gives you a sign uh, if you need, if you are needed as a workforce, so to say. I mean, and that's, yeah. that's kind of, uh, uh, yeah. That's that's not a human way of um, of. Well, it's back to the morality tale. I mean, so so much of this is a morality tale. I mean, what is the ethical framework of the manager who signs up on on that kind of a system? Or when well, it's not just it's never just an individual, which I guess is one of the flaws of this book is that it focuses so much on an individual. Um, but I understand why he wants to tell the story um, in this way to like to take down a, a hero. But um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it, it, it's this, yeah, this broader question of where's where's virtue gone? Where's the where's the honor of virtue in the in the workplace setting? Yeah, I was just I was just waiting because for the for the quote of uh, Carnegie, and uh, that you can uh, 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 that you can't die rich or something. I don't know exactly the quote, mm. but because he makes a comparison with the Gilded Age, and then he uh, and then he then he takes Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg, three men who founded technology companies, possessed as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the United States combined. I mean, it's mm. just unbelievable. And I'm just reading another book where there is a philosophical question, could there also be a kind of cap on wealth? I mean, we can also decide in a lot of countries there's a kind of minimum wage. Could there also be a maximum wage? But even asking this question is a kind of you're putting in a kind of anarchist Marxist uh, uh, role if you would if you would dare to ask this question. But let's say the more our society falls apart, uh, the more you will see books on this kind of uh, topics. If if yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think it's inevitable. I mean, look at the, the the rise of Bernie Sanders in the states. I mean, that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. But the fact he got as far as he did and he was as popular as he was suggests that there are many people clamoring for that kind of response, right? Um, a more authoritarian response to this situation. I think that's, I think that's inevitable. That's the last chapter, which uh, says beyond Welshism, a more responsible business model. And what I find interesting is um, uh, before diving into the, the, ex the uh, person he, he uses here, uh, it's in the end, the old, the old model. The old multi-stakeholder model. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so I mean, uh, he he takes Paul Pullman of Unilever, a Dutchman, although he doesn't explain that Unilever is half English, half Dutch. But okay, that's not a topic. Um, but let's say in the end, if you want to survive, it doesn't matter as an individual, or as a company, or as a state, etc. You also have to take interest of other players into account. If you are just egoistic. Uh, it will end badly. Uh, it doesn't matter. And just just one of those human principles. And then uh, that's the topic you just also mentioned. It's, in the end, it's about morality. 
it's um, yeah. we live we live in a moral crisis and all those other crises are derived from that I, I i think that's right and i think he and I, and i think he's right and he pulls out some some fantastic examples of paypal for example at the end of this which i hadn't realized he developed this index of the of the net disposable income and it's now calculating that for each of its employees i.e how much money have you got left after you've you know paid your taxes and your basic bills and if um and i think they're aiming for that to be at least 20 30 percent having found that many people were struggling even to get through the month um so you do see these these point examples of of, of companies and of course busy the the company that uh, you're a leader of is is one and there are many others um taking on this um virtue oriented approach um to business i mean what's interesting is he doesn't really talk he, he talks about it very much through sort of company culture lens at the end he doesn't he doesn't wind out to society at large he doesn't really take on how might we de-financialize society he doesn't take on how might we might we need to de-globalize i mean he cites klaus schwab and the wf as a potential source of inspiration for stakeholder capitalism seeming to ignore the fact that Klaus Schwab is one of the principal proponents of globalism, which got us into this place in the first place, or as a contributing factor to where we're at. So, so it, yeah, it, it feels a bit undercooked, his last chapter. Um, I totally agree. What I also find interesting is, uh, and I take a very, uh, uh, I take an example again on page 215, and then it, it, it's about, about, let's say, paying living wages offer better pay and benefits. And he says, we need to move beyond the world where employees of profitable multinational corporations qualify for food stamps, which to my point of view is insane. Uh, I mean, it doesn't exist to my point of view in continental Europe. Um, but then he continues, and that can only happen when employers commit to offering their workers a living wage. No, it's just when as a society in politics, we decide what a minimum wage is and that a minimum wage can't be a wage or a salary which where you still need food stamps so and that's that that should be the answer to that so i was just amazed that that on the one hand he's so extremely critical about about let's say the starting point of uh, of uh, that's why i just talked and dived into this turnaround and on the other hand it's so simple if you would just take the Scandinavian countries, or doesn't matter, perhaps Europe as a whole. In most countries, you just have a normal understanding that the minimum wage is the wage where you can pay all the stuff you need. If you, let's say, work between 35 and 40 hours a week, where the state supplies you know, whatever you want, public transport, schools in a way, Hospitals it may may be different from country to country, but there is a common understanding uh, about basic basic fundament in society, and that means that the that uh, society as a whole, by their politicians, decides the rules of the game, and they are not left over to the companies because problem is it's not it's not you can't solve this uh, if you if you own a company because if you would say higher salaries, this PayPal example, and somebody else doesn't, then it's not a level playing field. So I would say he just lost, uh, he, he took the wrong, the wrong road there. 
uh, which which I found uh, interesting. And then, well, yeah, I mean, I I would frame it as a partial. It's a partial answer, right? Of course, business leaders have a part to play in this, but there are there are many layers here, and we need action and a shift on all layers. Much easier if you just raise the minimum salary and say, okay, we have to do a new statistical uh, research. Where is this at the moment? And you don't have to raise it. And there's another one. But even that, but even that by itself, you know, if you've not got protectionist policies, then then you're still exposing the the companies to global competition. So it's it's got to be it's got to be all of a piece, hasn't it? Yeah, but in a lot of the interesting thing is that especially where you're exposed to to uh, global, um, let's say severe global competition, uh, often the the percentage of labor costs of your whole cost. Uh, has has changed since uh, a few decades now, so it depends very much also on the sector. So if you yeah. if, if you if you if you uh, produce something in a kind of fully automated uh, uh, factory where you have a few percent of labor cost, it, it's not important of if the guy who stands beside the machine what what he earns. So it's but at least I mean I would say it is a discussion in society which has to be solved by in a kind of political debate that's where this this stuff is solved yeah i think a political and ethical and yeah. cultural and then, it's, it's, and then yeah. you're back to your point it's a moral discussion yeah. do we as a society accept that if people work 40 hours that they're still not able to just to finance their lives that they have a decent yeah. normal life that's that that's a moral that's the moral question yeah brilliant oh, well let's end it on that let's end it on that <laughs> um i've really enjoyed this conversation um once again we were reviewing the man who broke capitalism um how jack welsh gutted the heart like across the solar corporate i mean America and how to undo his legacy. Legacy. So, thank you so much, uh, Tom. Um, we'll be back for a, for another fantastic book. I've really enjoyed the conversation, um, and see you next time. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Should Read This with Me, Richard Atherton, and my fantastic co-host Tom Van der Luba. If any of the material in this show resonated with you. If you're thinking, perhaps, how could I take these ideas and apply them in my own leadership or, or take them forward into my own organization, then I would love to have a conversation with you about that. If that feels like that could be a valuable use of your time, then please do click on the Calendly link in the description for this episode. And that will allow you to book a slot directly into my calendar. And I hope to speak to you soon.